2014 Faith Forward podcast series. The following presentation was recorded live at the 2014 Faith Forward gathering, which was held in Nashville, Tennessee. On May 19th through the 22nd of that year, hundreds of conversation partners from across the globe and spanning dozens of denominational traditions gathered to question, share, and be inspired to reimagine ministry with youth and children. This podcast episode features Sandy Sasso's presentation at this gathering, which she titled, Tell Me a Story, Narrative and the Religious Imagination of Children. You know, I served a congregation for 36 years. Actually, uh, yesterday was the 40th anniversary of my ordination as a rabbi. Uh, So I guess you can imagine that I've had lots of questions uh, from religious school teachers about what to do in the classroom when children ask about God. So some years ago, uh, a third grade teacher came into my office desperate, and she handed me a list of 15 questions. And they were questions like, where does God live? What happens after I die? How can God be everywhere at the same time? And they went on and on and on. And she said to me, okay, can you come into the classroom and answer all these questions? (laughs) So I thought for a minute and I said, oh, of course I'll come into the classroom. I had no idea what I was going to do. But then I realized what I needed to do was to tell a story. And here is a... um, ancient Jewish story that I will share with you and just tell you a little bit of why I think that was the right thing to do at the moment. So there is the story of a man, an elderly man, who was sitting in a congregation in a synagogue and, you know, he tended to fall asleep during the rabbi's sermon, but one moment he woke up in the midst of the sermon and he heard the rabbi said that God likes 12 loaves of bread. And the man thought, well, that's very strange. I I don't know why God would want, you know, 12 loaves of bread, but if that's what God wants, then I'm going to give it to God. And so the man went home, and he baked challahs, 12 loaves of Sabbath bread, and he said, well, now what do I do with them? Well, I know. I've got to go to the holy place in the synagogue, and I'm going to put them in the ark where the Torahs are kept. And so he puts them in the ark, and he goes home. Well, a few minutes later... Uh, the janitor of the synagogue comes in and stands before the ark and says, oh God, I I really don't want to ask anything, but we're having such a hard time. Uh, We're in great need. We don't even have enough to eat. Could you help me? And he opens the ark in order to clean inside, and he goes, oh God, I didn't know you worked so quickly. (laughs) I mean, 12 loaves of bread, wonderful, and he goes home. Well, the next day on the Sabbath, when the gentleman comes back again, he waits for the opening of the ark in the service. And the ark is open. He says, God ate my hollis. Who knew? I mean, if God likes them so much, I think I'll make them with raisins. So he goes home, he makes another 12 loaves of bread, and he takes it to the ark. And, you know, the same thing goes on. The janitor comes in and says, I'm sorry, I don't like to ask twice, but really we still need some help. Opens the ark and goes, oh, I got this time with the raisins, even better. Well, this goes on and on for a long time until one day the, the rabbi is in, in the synagogue sitting in the back, you know, thinking about what his sermon is going to be. And he sees what goes on. 
and he has something to decide. Should she, he tell the man and uh, both men what was going on? And he decides, yes, he has to tell them. So he brings them both into his office, and he tells them that God hasn't been eating challah, and God hasn't been baking you challah. But now I'm going to tell you to do something more difficult than you did before. Everybody raise their hands. Because your hands and your hands are the hands of God. You have to keep baking hollas and you have to keep taking them because your hands and your hands and your hands are the hands of God. That's what I did in the classroom. The children didn't need answers to those questions. They needed a story. And actually, it's one of the first times that I got calls from parents. <laughs> parents who said, I don't know what you did in Sunday school, but my children came home and they said it was the best day they had. What they need is a story. So you know the story of Peter Pan. Why does Wendy go to Never Never Land? Why does Peter Pan take her there? To teach the lost boys how to tell stories. Because if they knew how to tell them, then they would be able to grow up. And that's exactly what we need to do to give our children stories they can grow with. I think you'll recognize that religion really, its first, its first expression in religion is experience. You have an experience. The closest you can get to that experience is in story. You tell the story about what happened. Then it transforms into a ritual. You reenact it, you express it in liturgy, and then ultimately it becomes theology. The furthest you get from the experience is theology. The closest you get to the experience is the story. We want our children to get close to the story. So the question is, we don't have to um, simplify the concept. A lot of what I read in children's literature about God, um, about the meaning of life, was an effort to simplify the concept, assuming that children didn't really know how to engage these big questions. We don't have to simplify the concept. What we have to do is simplify the language. What kind of language do we need? It needs to be clear so that it can be comprehended by children. This is actually true for adults, too. The language we use has to be clear so children can understand what we're saying. Then we know that adults will appreciate it. It has to also be rich in metaphor, uh, images, so that it can be meaningful and relatable. <laughs> and it has to be concrete so that it can relate to the world of children or relate to our world. And then, most important, it should be critical in the sense that it should be open to a continuing conversation. It shouldn't be preaching. It should be open to questions and continuing conversation. These uh, delineations of religious language come from a professor of religion, uh, Craig Dykstra. And when I read this, I said, that's exactly what I try to do when I write for children. So the theology of some children's books um, are troublesome. So I'm going to tell you a story that I heard not long ago. So there is a big cafeteria line in a parochial school. 
at um, the beginning of the line is a large bowl of apples over which a teacher has written a sign that says, take only one, God is watching. <laughs> well, at the end of the cafeteria line, there is a large plate of warm chocolate chip cookies over which a student has written a sign, take all you want, God's watching the apples. Sometimes the theology we give kids is like that story. They can't really grow with it. We need to give them a deeper theology. So you all know the story of the Exodus. That's as close as I could get to the crossing of the sea, uh, the Sea of Reeds. Um, and it's not just the story itself, but the way in which we tell the story that makes a difference. So, you know, on Passover, Jews have a Seder, and we gather uh, for a large meal, and we tell the story of the Exodus. Well, the last couple of times I gathered at my home uh, with my, with, well, two of my grandchildren, I decided to tell the story in a godly play fashion, which some of you may be familiar with. So it's a telling of the story where the manipulatives are moved on the floor, and the focus is moving all the pieces. And so, you know, I had a baby, and I had a basket, and I had a burning bush, and I had Pharaoh and Moses. I had a few plagues, left out a couple. And, um, you know, I had a little sea that separated, and I had a tambourine for Miriam. And when we got to the sea, I said, you know, some people, when they were here at the sea, were afraid. And some were confused, and some couldn't move, and some were happy, and some had courage. And there is a rabbinic story, so I said, and there's also a story of a man named Nakshon ben Aminadab, who walked into the sea until the water reached his nose, and then the sea split. So after the story, I asked the question, where are you in this story? And I asked who you might be in crossing the sea. Now, I want you to know, the four and the six-year-old said, I'm brave. I'm courageous. And every adult said, I'm afraid. I'm confused. But everyone could see themselves in the story. So at the end of the story, I asked if there were other questions. And my six-year-old grandson says, so they call me Bubby. Tell me, Bubby, is this fiction or non-fiction? <laughs> Don't you love those questions? <laughs> so it so happened we had discussed the meaning of myth. Okay, you know, my husband's a rabbi, I'm a rabbi, so six-year-olds know what myth is. And I said, you know, I think part of the stories are a bit like myth. I don't know that it all happened the way it was really written, the way it was written, but I know something big happened and it was very important. And he says, oh yes, thank you, because that part about the sea splitting, that could never have happened. 
So here was an opportunity for a young person to begin to grapple with the story about the difference between what's true and what's truth and, and engage that story so later when they grow up and they say, I don't know if this could really have happened, they can still appreciate, they could still appreciate the story. I'm always, I'm very fond of a author named Catherine Patterson who has written incredible children's books, mostly chapter books for children. So I wanted to share with you this quote. I did not need stories that told me to be good. What I wanted in a story was what I longed for in a friend. I wanted understanding. I wanted to feel someone understood me. I wanted to understand myself. I wanted to make sense of a world that was frightening and chaotic. I didn't want a lecture. I wanted a story, a story that could make me laugh and cry, and when I was finished, would give me hope for myself and the world. That's what I hope in the stories we share with our children. Because the truth is that stories are never really finished. They continue in the lives of those who read them. So there are two angels in the book of Genesis in the narrative of Jacob. So there's the comforting one of the angel of Bethel who meets Jacob and promises him that he will be taken care of, and the more frightening one at the river Yabok when Jacob wrestles with an angel. Stories invite children in a journey of the spirit by taking seriously their questions about life's meaning to help them when they encounter both those angels. The angels of dreams and visions and hope and the angels they wrestle with all through the night. So there has been a reluctance for us to talk about spirituality with children. 93% of youth in a study of the Search Institute said they believe there is a spiritual dimension to life. 14% say their religious institution helps them explore their spirituality. 14%. And in fact, one in five says no one helps. Okay, children want to have this conversation about spirituality, but no one actually really wants to talk to them about it. Uh, why? Well, some people think that they're too young, they can't have this sophisticated, abstract conversation. And the other is, we don't know the answers ourselves, what are we possibly going to tell the children? We're uncomfortable. Uh, we talked about how do we work with parents. Uh, this is what I tell parents. You don't have to be an expert. Judy, this is uh, from a famous Jewish philosopher, Emmanuel Levinas. Judaism is suspicious of any rhetoric which never stammers. It has as its chief prophet a man slow of tongue. You don't have to be sure. <laughs> Remember that Noah built the ark, he was an amateur. The Titanic was built by experts. <laughs> Don't wait for experts. <laughs> so I want to say a few words about 
how we might use story in the classroom, at home, anytime we tell a story. So usually when I use a story, I try to introduce it with a focus. If I want to talk, if it's a story about anger, I might say, have any of you ever been angry? Could you tell me something about it? And so we begin with the individual's, the child's personal experience. Can you tell me a time you've ever been afraid? And believe me, everybody has something to say. Now I'm going to tell you a story about people who were angry. Or now I'm going to tell you a story about people who were afraid. Now these, are, these questions are very much related to godly play, so if you know that, you'll be familiar with it. Uh, questions to encourage a deeper conversation. I don't really care when I tell the creation story what happened on the fifth day. Okay, but I care where people are in that story. Let's stop looking for the facts. Facts, okay, you can always look up, you can check, but the question is, what will you remember? What will you take away? So the first question is, I wonder what part you like the best. Everybody has an answer, and they're all different. I wonder what's the most important part to you. I wonder what part is about you, this is my favorite, question and where you are in the story. And I wonder what part of the story we can do without and still have enough of the story. Those are questions that invite children into the narrative and, they, and to see their place within that narrative. So, I mean, some of you are familiar already with my children's book, so I'm, I'm going to go over this rather quickly. But the reason I wrote God's Paintbrush was because my daughter, when she was five, and she's now 34, uh, came home from uh, a day camp. It was a Jewish day camp with a picture of a lovely-looking grandfather. And when I asked her what was that to tell me more about it, she said, well, they asked us to draw God. And, you know woman rabbi in the 70s, and it just didn't, and she says, don't worry, Mom, I know God's not a man. <laughs> I said, thank God. Uh, but she said, I handed them a blank page, and they said I had to draw something, and this was all I could think of, the grandfather with the beard. And I said, oh my gosh, she's five years old. She wasn't ready for seminary. And I don't think she was ready to read Tillich, but, uh, <laughs> or even Maimonides, whatever. But she had rich images in her world, and she couldn't grab on to any rich images when it came to God. And so that's why I wrote God's Paintbrush. And I tried to take vignettes that were related to children's experience. So this is one about um, nighttime and when we're afraid, and what the stars being a nightlight. And each vignette ends with a question, which was the important part of the book. And actually, when I, I couldn't, I wrote this book in the 1980s as part of a doctor of ministry degree. And I got it published about six years later after being rejected by every known publisher. And until one publisher said, oh, I think we're interested in this book, but could you do one thing? Could you take out the questions? <laughs> and I said, well, that actually was the point of the book. And then they said, but you don't get it. Parents are the ones that buy the book. They don't like the questions. They don't know the answers, so they won't buy it. 
Well, it ended up this publisher didn't publish it, and I sent it then to Jewish Lights, who did publish it, but they said, you know, we really like, and I had taken out the questions, because I figured, I, I don't know anything about publishing. And they said, we really like this book, but could you do one thing? <laughs> could you put in questions? And, of course, I knew I found the right publisher, and that's what children like most about the book. This is a story about Echo, and it says, how are you God's Echo? What does God call us to do? And I, I just have a, a couple to show you. I'm not going to read them all. This is about God liking changes, you know, the change of seasons, losing a tooth. God is not what's permanent, but what is constantly changing. In fact, that's what the word tradition means. Tradition means that which is passed on and therefore changes and is transformed as it's passed from person to person and from generation to generation. Also, what makes us able to do something all by ourselves, like learning to ride a bike or like crossing a street? What I wanted to talk about a God, not what God could do to us if we're bad or for us if we're good, but what we could do because of God. And that's the question here. What makes you feel big enough to do something all by yourself for the very first time? So many of you have seen In God's Name, so I'm going to go through it very quickly, but I want to tell you what happened with it. So each person names God out of his or her own experience. Source of light, mother, the other one is father, um, soldier, tired of war, calls God maker of peace, and a little girl who is lonely calls God friend, and then they all think my name's better than your name, and they fight until the end they come together and look in a lake that's a mirror, and they name all the names for God at the same time, and they call God one. So I've used this book a lot in talking to children, and I would ask them their favorite name for God at the beginning of the story, which was pretty traditional, you know, father, king, God. Uh, and then I would ask him at the end of the story, and it was usually mother or friend. But no one had ever given them permission to use those names that related to their own experience. So I want to tell you one story about this. I uh, did this during the Day of Atonement, which is the holiest day of the Jewish year, uh, when we have the most people in the synagogue. And I told this story to a family service. And at the end, I said, I want anyone to tell me what is his or her favorite name for God. And there was a little boy who stood up, and he said his mother, he was one of triplets. His mother was suffering from breast cancer, had been since she was a year, she, he was a year old. And he said, I want to call God healer. It was the most sincere prayer I heard that whole day. Now some, oh, I guess it was maybe 20 years later, or maybe 18 years later, when I was about to retire, I said, what am I going to say in my sermon? I want to tell those moments that impact me the most. And I told this story. I'll never forget that little boy. After the service, that little boy who was now in college studying astrophysics <laughs> came up to me, and I said to him, did you recognize yourself in that sermon? And he said, yes, I was that little boy. And I said, you know, I will never forget that story. And he said, neither will I. 
the power of story to stay with us. So I did the same exercise with adults. They're harder. Uh, and one woman said, I want to call God an old warm bathroom. I thought that was a little strange, but I did say thank you for sharing. Uh, <laughs> About a year later, she came to me, I want to thank you for that exercise. I said, why? He said, because my mother died this past year, and I took her old warm bathrobe, and I wrapped it around me, and I felt the presence of God. Not long after that, uh, there was a young man in our congregation who had um, been to Iraq in the war, and he had come home pretty quiet about it, but he called me one day. Remember that story you told in God's name? Like, you know, how many years ago? He says, I know what I want to call God. I want to call God my trampoline because when I'm feeling down, it, it's God is what able, enables me to bounce back. Stories stay with us a long time. Even if you think the children aren't listening, they are, they carry it with them. I, want, I know that I'm, I'm running a little late. I just want to share with you two other short stories, uh, but I've sort of lost where I am. Oh, yes, okay, God is like a mirror, and everyone who looks into it sees a different face. We just have to give our children permission to look in the mirror uh, and tell us what they see, tell us our story. Okay, that's the holla in the ark, so you won't forget that, in case you didn't know what it looked like. <laughs> So there are a couple, there are, this is a, a brief story that I told. Do you know the mezuzah's little cylinder that's on the right hand uh, of the doorpost of the Jewish home? It's slanted. Have you ever wondered why? Okay, I'm not going to tell you. So, <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> well, actually, there's an ancient story. It's, it's actually, this is a true story of two rabbis, uh, Rashi and Rabbeinu Gershom, who was his grandson, who said, one said it should stand straight up, and one said it should lie down. They couldn't agree, so what did they do? They compromised, and they put it slanted into the home. So at the entrance to every Jewish home is a symbol of compromise. So I said, whoa, what a great story for kids. And so I had a town, and they couldn't figure out how to put the mezuzahs. Half the side said, standing up, and half the side said, lying down. And so in the story, that's just one picture. This is my grandson, who's, whoops, who's four, favorite page. He calls it the screaming page. <laughs> and what, it's funny, because they scream. And so finally, each page gets bigger, standing up, lying down, standing up, lying down, until they finally recognize they have to have it standing up a little and lying down a little, and they learn to put the mezuzah up because inside the mezuzah is a piece of paper that says, Shema, listen, listen. Uh, and when I tell this story, I ask parents to tell their kids when they don't listen to them. And then I ask kids to tell their parents when they don't feel listened to. It's a very powerful experience. So I, you may know the story of Noah's wife. I, I don't want to get into it too much, except that you also the Noah movie. And guess what Noah's wife's name was? Nama. That's her name in rabbinic tradition. And I think they took it from my book. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
So the best part of the book was the part about the dandelions, and I, I just share it with you briefly. Uh, Nama walked past the dandelion. She was supposed to collect two of every seed. Nama called God, gather seeds of every living plant. And Nama knew that God meant the dandelions too. Reluctant, she, she placed them in her pockets because Nama had ignored them. God made certain that dandelions would cover the earth. Well, I love, this just came to me. I don't know when I was writing the story. It wasn't originally part of it. And I had a minister come up to me, a woman minister with a dandelion on her stole. And she said to me, that's how I felt in the ministry early on as a woman. And isn't that how our children feel sometimes? Rejected, overlooked, ignored. This story said, God still loves them. I said the seed of every living plant. Now, I should just say very briefly, I got a call from the Secretary of the Interior of the United States after that book came out. I go, yeah? <laughs> he says, so the part about the dandelions, we love it. I said, you do? <laughs> yes, and we want to know from what sacred source you got it. <laughs> and I said, my imagination. <laughs> he said, oh. <laughs> because that was the message he wanted to give, but clearly my imagination was not old or sacred enough to use it. But that's the power of story. So my very, very last book that just came out is about what is the difference between the light of the first day of creation and the light of the fourth day of the sun and the moon. It is a midrash. Midrash is a way of reading into the biblical text, filling in the blank spaces of what's not there. So if we don't have names, we give names. If we don't have stories, we give stories. And the question is, what is the light of the first day of creation? How is it different from the light of the sun and the moon? So it begins by saying, when Adam and Eve did not listen to God and ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, God hid that light. So according to rabbinic midrash, that light is hidden. And they say it went many places. It was passed on by the way. It's the light in the ark of Noah. The, the, it's not a window. The Hebrew is not a window. The Hebrew is Zohar, which means splendor or light. So according to the rabbis, it got passed to, to Noah all through the generations. And somehow it got lost until... Well, we don't know until when. And so I wrote this story to say, I used all the rabbinic midrash, and I said, so where do we find that light? And I suggested in a room full of questions, in a field of memories, in the light of a newborn baby's eyes. And if you look deep within yourself, you will find that light. That light has a name, and it's called a soul. And when I told this story to a group of ministers, this one man gave me this light. And he said, I want you to remember the light of the first day of creation because it's in all of us and it's in all our children. And they can see it burning brightly if we help them tell their stories. And that's what we're here all about. Thank you. content
contents of this podcast episode are reproduced by permission of the presenter and Faith Forward under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivations Copyright. The Faith Forward podcasts are produced by Dave Sinis. Stay tuned for more episodes of the 2014 Faith Forward podcast series on the web at faith-forward.net. And join us in Chicago for the 2015 Faith Forward Gathering, April 20th through 23rd.